Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. It's that time again. Welcome to Caucus. Uh, we'll come to order this week. Roll call, please. I'm Lisa Owen. I'm Guy Espiner. And I'm Tim Watkins. Scott Campbell, not with us today. He's... Um, because of this whole coronavirus um, thing, we are forced to record this later in the day because of RNZ uh, restrictions around the rooms and studios, and Scott's tied up today, unfortunately. We'd hoped to have an even open today because this was supposed to be the day that we were coming out of lockdown in Auckland, but then on Monday, this happened. The Director-General has recommended to Cabinet, and Cabinet has agreed to apply a short extension of Level 3 restrictions in Auckland until 11pm 11.59pm this Sunday, 30 August. These extra four days are believed necessary to allow us to move down a level in Auckland and stay down. Guys, it's been a week, hasn't it? Auckland is... Uh, how do you think Auckland's been coping with it? Oh, I think they've been struggling. I was driving down Queen Street on the way into the studios, completely empty. I, I saw one person um, a few hundred metres away. I mean, Auckland's, um, Auckland's struggling. Businesses are struggling. People are struggling, I think. I think people are struggling to stick to the rules. I think last time we were at this level of lockdown, there was more buy-in. Um, and probably people, I'm thinking, saw a real imminent danger, whereas now we have a cluster that they realise is happening, but maybe they see it as a bit of otherness. It's not in my neighbourhood. It's one um, relatively contained cluster. But people are wombling all over the place like yeah. they weren't before. And you can see it driving to work to record this. The motorway was really busy. Um, and there are more people out and about, and there are definitely people crossing town and leaving their neighbourhoods and associating with other bubbles. It's what we call fatigue. Yeah, there's that, but there's also, uh, you can't blame people in in my view for, the the messaging has been a little bit confusing. Um, You know, here we are today, as we, before we came into the studio, we we had our masks on. It's taken a long, long time for uh, the public messaging to to get on board with wearing masks. And we were told that they weren't really that effective. Now we're being told to to wear them in in many occasions and, and compulsory on public transport shortly um, it, it's really the, the same with uh, the, the testing regime I mean we were told um, test 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 then we were told um, don't clog up the testing if you if you haven't got any symptoms go home um, and and now we're being told that they really want to ramp up the testing again and they're encouraging people to get a test. So I, I think the messaging has been a bit confused. I think people are a bit confused now and, on and, many and of these issues. And they're looking and they're, they're feeling something long-term. Right? The first time round, there was that sense of, OK, we come together, team of five million, fight through this, and, and there was a beginning and an end. Now it's it's a sense that this is just going to keep dribbling through, little beginnings, little ends, little beginnings, little ends. And certainly... If I walk around the neighbourhood, I still see a lot of cars on the road 
and I see 90-something percent of people walking around the parks that um, in my neighbourhood are not wearing masks. We had, we had my little family trot off with our little masks on as we, as we walk the dog, and, you know, one person out of 50 will be wearing a mask. It's the realisation that this is a marathon. It's not the 5K sprint. Yeah. And at various points um, in a long race, it is incredibly painful. And I think we're only starting to get the taste of that because there is a lag also in the fallout from this. There's a lag in terms of job losses. It takes a while to filter through in the numbers. And as the crunch goes on a second time, more of those things are starting to surface, and they're surfacing in a neighbourhood and backyard near you. Look, the, the the business the business situation. Interest. You've talked, Guy, about you know you're feeling a, a tipping point in terms of some of the business mood around here. Yeah, and further to Lisa's point, I think that's right. There, there is a lag there, and you're seeing some some big name businesses fall over, and you're seeing some awful results get get posted here in New Zealand. Uh, for one, lo- losing hundreds of millions. And um, those sorts of results are coming coming home to roost. Um, obviously, with a wage subsidy too, uh, that had propped things up for a while, and a, a lot of uh, debate now about whether that should be extended. Yeah, half a billion a week Auckland's losing under lockdown. It's a phenomenal amount of money. Um, and Scott has uh, not with us today, but he he said he. Um, emailed and, and said, without going into detail, he's seen a, a number of businesses he's aware of starting to hit tough times in the next week that a lot of people have been hanging on till September. And once September kicks in, the, you know, there, there will be a, a certain business tipping point for a number of organisations. So we had Judith Collins, right? And yes, she, she has She has jumped into the fray about the wage subsidy. Just to be clear, you would give businesses extra money rather than less money? Well, I think, yes, I think what we need to understand, Susie, is that this wage subsidy is only helping to pay wages. It's not helping to pay all the other costs that people in business have. And we have already heard from the Hospitality Association, and I don't think they're scaremongering, where they've said that they believe 10% of their businesses will not survive this last uh, weekend. I actually think that's true, and I think it's really important that we understand that it is better to pay people the wage subsidy, which we've always supported, than it is to have them on the dole queue. So she was saying that they should extend it, like the extension to the lockdown in Auckland is four days. The government has said it's kind of quite complicated technically to make that happen because it's not a full week. And also the pot of gold is only so big, right? We are borrowing every single dollar here that we are paying out. And, you know, we have delivered 22 weeks of payment. You know, for somebody who's been in, in, a, in a business of, of you know, of, of 10 to 40 people, we're talking about up to a couple $100,000, $128,000. This is significant. OK. But, we but, know it's tough, Corinne, and I'm not denying that, but you do have to look at this in the total uh, level of support. OK. But Judith Collins has come out and said, no, nah, you should extend it. Businesses are feeling the burn. Anti-New Zealand, she says, to cut, cut it off. Well, and not the New Zealand way. Yeah, yeah. 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 I, I think she's got a fairly strong argument in, in that respect. Um, you know, it's not free money, but having said that, the government put billions away for a second wave of COVID, and this is what we're dealing with. Um, I see the Greens have come on board too with this, so you've got... 
uh, National and the Greens, and I think ACT as well. Yep, have you ACT, not? Yeah, ACT okay. absolutely is yeah. on board so, with so, extension. So that's an unusual coalition of the willing, <laughs> perhaps, for that. But I think, and it, it, it's not a great argument from the government, is is it? That that well, it's this is kind of quite hard to, well, to the, process. So we're not going to do it. And it's the first time they've they've been on the less generous side of the argument, right? And it's fascinating that the centre right parties are the ones who are saying give away more public money. But because it's two businesses, they know that you know that if the was a lot of public money being given away, it would probably be um, business on the right who would be leading the charge of criticism. But because they're the beneficiaries of it, of the wage subsidies, they're not going to get that criticism. So politically, National knows that, that their own people are going to are still going to support them, so they can afford to be more generous. Yeah, depend- Labor's trying to look more disciplined. It depends how, how far you look down the, the chain to say that it's going to businesses, because obviously um, it's going to their uh, employees as well, who are the workers, right? It so, is, definitely. Um, you know, and, and in any economy, that's the most important thing. It's the most important, from a humane perspective, and the most important economic measure really is, but, is but unemployment, isn't it? So if people don't have livelihoods and jobs, then... You know, interesting point that Bernard Hickey's written about this week, which which is that, you know, a lot of the, the, the bigger businesses have taken big chunks of money. Fletcher Building, Warehouse, Sky City, over $170 million worth of wage subsidies between them. They've still laid off... 2,700 workers between them. Between them, so, uh, you know, you look at NZME this week, um, taking a, a large amount of um, of wage subsidies as well, and has, uh, have got a profit still, and are going to pay a dividend next year. So, a lot of companies are actually taking that wage subsidy and protecting their bottom line, not just their wages. So, it is it, it, Bernard's argument, an interesting one, is that actually this is one of the historically one of the biggest giveaways to New Zealand business and it's coming from a Labour government. They're not actually doing what Australia did and so forth and giving money directly into the hands of, of working and the working poor and beneficiaries. In New Zealand is another one of the big companies, interestingly enough, that has had a huge wadge of money in the wage subsidy scheme and is also getting um, a well an underwritten loan from the government of $900 million, which they have indicated today that they're going to have to dip into um, pretty soon, yet they still have laid off a significant number of people as well. And I think, you know... You've you've also got that dreadful word counterfactual, though, haven't you? Yes. Um, In in terms of what would it have been like without that. Hideous. And, and, okay, we know that those unemployment numbers were were a bit cooked, weren't they? Um, What what is the current unemployment rate? Something got... Less than it was before COVID. And and we know that that was... By about um, 0.1%. Yeah, and we know that that wasn't really But it is bizarre But but, the housing market is up, the stock market is, if it wasn't being hacked this week, would have been hitting record highs. Not hacked. Okay, sorry, being infiltrated. But neither of those... (laughs) I would argue are good news. I mean, the, the, the it's sh- a good the, thing that. Well, the share market. I mean, the, the economy is sh- still functioning. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, the share market. It, the share market is high because interest rates are so low, and, and money needs a home, and so it's it's going into that. Yeah. And I, I don't really think that that's a great indicator. And the same with the housing market. I mean, that's just exacerbating problems we already have. We're not building. Obviously, we're not growing new land. People need places to live. We don't have enough houses. But that's, and so the market is keeping going. Up. I, I don't think either. But that's the point. Are, that's the point. Whether no, but that's the point. So is Labor putting the is the wage subsidy the best way to be getting us through this? Well. It is a combination of factors because at the moment we've got record low interest rates, right, which stimulates the housing market, which benefits the people who already have houses because if more people are able to purchase, there's greater competition for the houses that are on the market and then your house price goes up and you're worth more because you've got more equity in your 
in your property and around and around and around we go. Uh, bang on. I totally agree with that. So what, what are we doing in terms of the inequality stuff and from a Labour government? Yeah, uh, that's I, I, I would venture to say bugger all, and especially since um, she's ruled out a capital gains tax for as long yes. as she's Prime Minister. Imagine it if we had one now. <laughs> uh, it would be quite an interesting um, question to the Prime Minister at some point. I mean, d- d- does that come back on the table? I see Alan Bollard uh, making noises today about whether those kinds of things could be back on the table. Uh, he was talking at a, a financial summit. Uh, Politically, a virtual that's impossible one, of course. for her, isn't it? She well, can't. She, you know, it was such a, a guaranteed underlined, and she said it even, you know, at the very start of this campaign, even post COVID, not second lockdown, but, well, but early well, on, I, she's been well, still it that out. famous quote about when the circumstances change. So, to my my, my opinion, yeah. But um, and and I would I would think that you know that it would be completely legitimate. Uh, Politically difficult, but completely legitimate to to say, look, we need new revenue gathering tools, and we've talked about it on in, in this um, podcast before. I mean, where are the policies to to actually address the reality of this situation and say we've got to pay this money back at some point? You either at some point you either cut spending or raise revenue. And well, um, I've, I've seen nothing. No one's been brave enough to say, look, how, how do we actually get out of this? And as Lisa says, you know, all you're doing is you're, you're pushing up. Who's got equities in houses? Yeah, you know, wealthy the, people, the right? People. And, yeah. and, 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 and they're classic, the ones who are, you, are actually okay at the moment. We're raising inequality with, with, this, with, the, with these policies. So my pick is you've got, as, you, as you've said, $14 billion sitting there for, this, for the ongoing thing. What, what are the odds then? If they've, got a, they've got a recommendation sitting there from the Welfare Working Group to increase benefits, by, and that'll cost you $5 billion-ish. Surely that could be a way of addressing this inequality, right? That that I just wonder whether that's one of the policies we're going to hear as a second-term promise from Labour. It's sitting there waiting to be done, something the Greens want to do, something they wanted to do and they haven't got to in the first term. I wonder whether that will become a campaign issue in the next few weeks. Well, we haven't even seen a, a tax policy, an economic no. policy from Labour um, no. at this point. And the, they, they did raise um, benefit levels, didn't they? $25. $25. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I, I'm not saying that they shouldn't do uh, another raise, but I can't see them doing that um, if they're trying to fight a middle ground election. Politically, I can't see them them doing that, um, but yeah, it's possible, yeah. I guess. On the economics, I want to raise this issue because it's come up a bit recently. Um, women, yeah. so and the disadvantage that women are facing as a consequence of what is happening with COVID, which is takes us right back to the politics again. Because hey, we women are more likely to vote than men statistically. Yes. So we matter. We matter anyway. But and, and and you know a lot of talk, John Key. Um, won a lot of women over to national during his years. Um, and we have two women leaders who have, yeah, the women vote's going to be very interesting. Yeah, it is. And when you look at the wage subsidy and MSD's website's got some great statistics, not a great website to navigate around, but there are some really good statistics there. 65% of employed males are being supported by the wage subsidy, it's right? It's just a phenomenal amount, it isn't is. it? It is. It's a huge amount. But if you look at the graph, there's a graph there and it shows you that women in um, older age groups, 50% or fewer of them are being supported by the wage subsidy. And the older age group you go to, the bigger the gap between how many women are supported by the wage subsidy and how many men are supported mm. by it. Now, you, you might say, well, maybe that's a good thing because maybe these women's jobs are still, secu- there. still there and secure. Uh, uh, uh. No. Because when you look at the statistics for 
job losses during this period of time, 90% of the job losses have been sheeted back to women. 90% of those who have lost their jobs during this time have been women, and they are overrepresented in those more tenuous um, work streams. Yes. And also, I have I have heard um, one of the Kiwi Bank economists talking about um, amelioration around the, the the gathering that data, and that it might be more like sixty or seventy percent. Correct. E- even so, Correct. though, we're talking about a heavy yeah. skew to, to women losing their jobs. Let's do a bit of cross pollination here. If you want to really dig into the detail, get to the details episode today, which looks really crunches down into the figures and addresses that. Even with the adjustment of those figures, and even if you accept that it's more like 60 to 70% of those people who lost their jobs were women, it's still disproportionately women. Yes. And also, we know from those job statistics that Guyon referenced um, just before, that underutilised workers, workers who want more hours, who simply cannot get them, a lot of those hours are in industries that are overrepresented by women. Yet the government has piled a bunch, and we're talking billions of dollars here, into infrastructure projects, which they call shovel-ready infrastructure projects. Yes, women can be carpenters, they can be engineers, they can be all of those things, but they are currently underrepresented in those industries. Only about 4%, I think, Correct. in training, Correct, that's right, right. Yeah. 4% in training. So if you are, excuse the pun, shoveling your money in there right now, (laughs) you can't turn these unemployed women into those professionals that require an apprenticeship immediately. But counterfactual, again, the counterfactual is fascinating. What would you do? Because, you know, a Labour government, again, you would expect to be doing something You'd on this run front. A roller what would you do? Over it. What would you, you do? No, okay. Because, so, because where women are, are, are the highest proportion of the workforce is tourism, hospitality. There ain't nothing to do there. Yeah, and if you could see us now, both Tim and I are gesticulating <laughs> like mad at each other over this because we know that Treasury was asked to run a ruler over their plans and policies to help us during this COVID time, run a gender ruler over it, yeah. see if it works across the board. Um, and we know that Julianne Genta wrote to the finance minister and said, hey, you might want to consider this as a factor, yet still all of this money has gone into those projects which we know skew towards male employment. Given that women are more likely to go to the polls and vote, maybe want to pause a little bit and have a think about that. So the politics, Guy, and we've, we've talked just about, you know, maybe some of the money skewing to to not traditional Labour voters and, and not, you know, as equitable. We're talking about the, the job creation skewing away, again, not necessarily from traditional Labour voters and being particularly equitable. Is this a political risk for the government? I think it's a political risk and, and, a, and a policy risk. I mean, I can understand that in a crisis you, you just throw money at stuff and you and you hope, you know, you want to act quickly. And, the you know, the, the, the perfect is the enemy of the good. So I, I cut them some slack on that initially. But this has been months now, and, and those are great points that, that, that Lisa makes and, and that both of you make there. And so we've got that, haven't we, on, on, a, on, a, on a gender scale, on an ethnicity scale, on a wealth scale. Mm. Um, we're doing the old thing that we always do, which is pile the money to, towards men and towards <laughs> the wealthy, um, and we're letting others fall through the cracks. And I think Labor's vulnerable on that. I guess they will feel well, um, you know, National is, 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 is hardly um, protesting this, so politically that they are, they are safe, um, and no one... 
um, other than commentators are, are making a fuss about that. They may feel that they are, are, are safe enough. So, yeah, I don't know that they're going to get their ears no. clipped on a, on a political lens, but I think that um, the points that you guys are making on a policy lens, absolutely. The numbers people are making a fuss about mm. that, and by that I mean economists, you know, well-regarded and respected economists. Kiwi Bank Chief Economist Jared Kerr um, s- spoke to me on Checkpoint, and he said absolutely the government should be targeting policy uh, in terms of financial support and incentives for projects towards women and other groups. The other point that I'd make and the other number that really struck me uh, that came out this week is that that incomes had dropped about 7% and that was the first time that it happened in a very long time Mm. uh, on a a year-by-year basis. So when when those numbers come out from MSD in the future and they always do the inequality numbers, you're going to see a rise in inequality on this watch. Right now, that's a that's a pretty big deal because, you know, the asset prices are, are going up, the 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 wages have been subsidised on, on on this lens, the it, those incomes have dropped, and some of those people dropping out of the workforce are going to be ones who who weren't in strong positions already. So you're going to see a rise in inequality on this policy, and and, and, and Labour should really take note of that, given what they claim to represent. And they and they feel, uh, it feels this week um, as if National has finally found a little bit of a, a, a firmer footing to stand on, hasn't it? They've actually, they've talked about, um, uh, Judith Collins talking about the businesses having other costs other than wages, um, saying that the wages subsidy, as we said, should be extended. Um, and we've had um, Shane Retty in the House this week too, um, uh, having a few throws at uh, Chris Hipkins. Is he really telling New Zealanders that the government cannot count the number of people who entered managed isolation and subtract the number who were tested at day three? Mr Speaker, no. I'm saying that we don't routinely measure the number of people who haven't had had day three tests because it's not not the most important consideration when it comes to our public health response. The key question that people should be asking is, are people being released from managed isolation are at risk of taking COVID-19 into the community? Because they get a day 12 negative test before they are released, they are not. Isn't it interesting? That was um, Shane Retty saying, uh, asking and showing in, in the House that people are not being universally tested at day three in isolation. Um, Chris Hipkin saying that no, it doesn't matter because you're not allowed out until you, you get a negative anyway. But it was just, it was another slight reminder, a little bit like last week, wasn't it, that we're assuming test, 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 but it's not all the testing that we necessarily yeah, are thinking I going mean, on. Yeah, I mean, if it matters, you measure it, right? I mean, that's pretty much it, isn't it? I mean, wh- why aren't they measuring that? And if it, if the rule is a day three test, then and, and why are we have doing it? Test? And why are we doing it if it's not important? I mean, I, mean, I, I get it, and I'm not going to wade in with a, with um, some sort of quasi medical opinion. I, I simply don't know, um, but. You, you would imagine that if they are mingling in isolation, which I know they're not supposed to be, but we we see photographs that people are, um, then, you know, I think you would act differently if you knew you were positive on day three. And as I say, if they're doing a day three test, it must matter. And if it matters, they should be measuring it. I, I'm amazed that they haven't taken uh, the care to actually really quantify and really nail down these things that 
are acting to stop it getting from the border into the community. And this surely is one of them. I would have thought that they would be measuring this. It's the politics of this, not the medical nature of it. It is a key performance indicator. It is proof of performance, (laughs) is it not? So if you say you're going to test on day three and then you're going to test what's the day 12, day 12, yeah, yeah, then, well, you should. And you should know if you are. And as Guyan says, unless you keep a record, you don't know. I was also interested to note in, uh, that he later came to a press conference, Chris Hipkins, armed with a number of figures, probably as a consequence. I can't remember the exact timing, which came first, the chicken or the egg. But he said it was 14 or 15 people had refused to have that last test. Yes. Which I found really interesting because one does not get past go if you do not have that test. No, so you can you be get kept to, in. You, you get, get kept. To, well, you get you get to stay another. You get to stay twenty eight <laughs> days um, if you haven't so had that it's a test. Hotel booking. So, so they had clearly kept um, quite methodically statistics for the final test, but not for the first one. And as you are pointing out, Guy, on it is it's a performance indicator. It's it, it's it's one of the things that's so hard for opposition, right? That you cannot when when the government the country is trying to be positive and hold together and be the team of five million to get through this. It's really hard for oppositions to 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 be critical because they just look negative. But it feels like in what we're talking about with the mood changes and so forth that that if they can find the right negatives, it's not Jerry Brownlee's stuff. It's not necessarily just whining about not knowing because nationals also whined yeah, a lot about not having information I, I, but some of these specific points yeah, that's right. people and I will think, listen I right? think it's been interesting to watch Judith Collins in the house um, and she's uh, taking the same approach she took with Phil Twyford over Kiwi Build which was just to ask quite detailed questions not sort of um, performance uh, let's hit the six o'clock news bulletin uh, type theatrical questions but just sort of chipping away and she got under the Prime Minister's skin a bit this week, I thought, uh, and one of them was over the nature of just who is responsible for the government's COVID-19 response. And, you know, because it's been a bit messy and there's been a lot of different people involved and the lines of accountability haven't been that clear and you've brought in the Roach Simpson um, Roche Simpson uh, team, that's all been a bit messy. So, um, and the Prime Minister got a bit testy over that and got a bit angry, um, which is unusual for her. So I think that um, that Collins is starting to m- um, make a bit of ground there. But but I, I still wonder whether it's a, it's a vote changer. I get the sense that patience is wearing thin, but is there, a, is there an almost um, ironic response to the people actually, as they start to feel, if they do start to feel more insecure, actually rely more on the incumbent and actually go, well, yeah, you're making a good point, National, but actually all I feel is slightly more anxious and so actually, let's just stay with what we've got. And it actually doesn't change votes. I'd be surprised if it changed enough for, for Labour to lose. Um, you know, they, they are... But does it change enough even to get National back to 40 and, and those kind of Bob, numbers? Or, I, I, I haven't got the crystal ball on that. No. But my feeling would be that um, they've averted the risk of being in the 20s. Um, and that um, with... Collins and with the approach they're taking and with the circumstances, they are probably averting a sort of 2002 disaster, you know, and she, she may well see them in, in um, safely in, in the 30s, but they are still a mile away from actually having a credible path to power in my assessment. But what we are seeing is the extra month starting to play yes. out in yeah. terms of what it is affording them. So even... 
even in the short, you know, the short time we've had where we know that the election is being pushed out, we're seeing, we've still got developing situations with a lot of loose ends, the cluster Mm. in in Auckland and the number of cases associated that and questions which remain unanswered, you know, about the maintenance man at the Ridges Hotel and exactly how we caught it, the transmission on the bus. There are a lot of question marks still. and And question marks are an opportunity if you are in opposition. And and, 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 and is this, uh, because you said something that's frightened me before we came in here, that that, um, we may not not be in a position, and I know that I don't want to put words in your mouth, you tell us, but that um, can we be 100% confident that we come out of lockdown uh, Sunday night? I don't think you can be 100% confident until it happens because I think there's been a uh, reasonably clear criteria uh, around uh, how we assess that. And if there are significant cases which we cannot sheet back to the so-called Auckland cluster and the Americold um, workers, then we wouldn't. And at the moment, they're still doing testing with what they call a mini-cluster associated with a church. They're confident in theory that it is related to the Americold cluster, but they then have other players in this situation. Another patient who they originally thought was in some way associated with this group, and they're now not sure, so they're doing more testing. So there are unanswered questions, and we've still got a number of days to run, and we know now from watching this before wow, so much can happen in two, three, four days. Oh, shoot me now. <laughs> <laughs> no. But th- this, is the, um, this is why the Prime Minister keeps saying um, about it being such a tricky disease, and this has been her word for the week. Um, so let's just listen to, to some of these comments. We have seen in recent days cases emerge that happened before Level 3 came into force. They have shown us how tricky this virus is. So that tail is is tricky. There have been some elements of this cluster that have made it tricky. We've seen transmission on a bus. You can see how easy it is and how tricky it is. Obviously, every country is experiencing uh, its own fight with COVID-19. It is a tricky virus. And so that's been the Prime Minister's message <laughs> this week. Yeah, I, yeah. And, and, and let me just let me just play David Seymour because David Seymour called her out on this this week, which was interesting. I also just point out that the lack of accountability is staggering. The Prime Minister refuses to blame anyone. Now she's blaming the trickiness of a virus. Well, no one's talked to me like that since I was at Horror Horror Kindy in 1987. Uh, it's trickiness that is to blame. Give us a break. <laughs> that was a great exchange. Yeah, she she's um, they've obviously focus grouped that, haven't they? There's no doubt about it. <laughs> yeah. And the anthropomorphising like as- it really, aren't they? You try, aspirational and tricky. Yeah, <laughs> but you try and you try and give this virus the the qualities of being an opponent of uh, being being an That's enemy. Right. It's quite clever, isn't it? And and. And it's yeah. like school C when you learn about personification. Yeah, well, that's what they're doing, yeah. isn't it? And so that the enemy becomes the, the virus, and, and that fits in with the other messaging, you know, against COVID-19. And, and, you know, we get that. We get all that. And they're right that it's it's a hard thing to, to stamp out. Let, let's be honest. I mean, yeah. let's, let's cut them some slack on that, isn't yes. it? I mean, that, no one else has done it. So <laughs> it is hard. But it is, it's interesting messaging. And... Um, I think where they, where David Seymour makes a good point and that they are open to criticism is that they 
they have been very reluctant to, to have single points of responsibility on, on this, and so that, that's all shifting around. And so it, it, um, it means that, that they are open to this challenge of, yes. of not taking responsibility, I guess. They've divided the pie up into so many pieces that it is difficult, which is basically what you're saying. You've got mm. Air Commodore Webb, who's responsible for operational. You've got Megan Woods, the housing minister, responsible for managed isolation and quarantine. The health minister covering off some other stuff. The prime minister coming in um, every now and then. And you've got the director general of health. And when I talked to Chris Hipkins the other day, after the um, cabinet discussion and the decision to extend for a few more days, and I said to him, what economic advice did you consider? when you were making this decision, and he, I'm summing up his words, but he basically said, oh, you'd need to ask the um, finance minister that. Well, hang on a minute. You were in Cabinet. It was a Cabinet decision. You were privy to that information. That is, that's just putting up a roadblock, Mm. that is. So that's passing the hot potato to someone else, and you can see it also in the way the press conferences run. I'll let you answer that one, X, Y, Z. You take that one, (laughs) X, Y, Z. You know, so I I think that it does make it more difficult when you do not, on the face of it, have a single point of accountability. But the government is accountable Mm. as a whole. It is, and and Grant Robertson's been saying this week. Yes, we we take account, we take responsibility for our whole response to the uh, (laughs) to the pandemic. So um, not just the last few weeks, which haven't been so good, but give us credit for the Mm. for the early stage, which was good. Um, But look, this is. With any kind of big global situation, it's this year's like no other, but it has got echoes of 2011, right, with uh, John Key's first term and the GFC. It's very easy for government to say, look out at the world, it's worse over there, um, this is not our problem. And in the same way that John Key was not responsible for um, the banks on Wall Street, Jacinda Ardern is not responsible for um, you know, a, a, a disease spreading the world. So, and, and I you think know, many can, people will see it that way. People will and, see and, it that and way. I, and I think I it's think probably likely that, yeah. that, will, that will get them home. Yeah. Um, that, that's probably how a lot of people will see it. Um, and that's not to say that they shouldn't be criticised for making mistakes and the failings that, that have occurred. But I... I I, I do think that, uh, you know, that sentiment will be shared by a lot of people, yeah. that they think that, um, OK, it hasn't been perfect, but they've done pretty well compared to everyone else. I think that a lot of people will see it that way. But, yeah, it might depend on, as you say, Lisa, if what happens at 11.59 on Sunday night in the next few weeks. It, I'm not know. wanting to to put the fear of God into people. I'm just Don't. saying, moving. Yeah, who Mo- knows? Moving parts. Um, before we go, I the, we were talking about a couple. We've talked about Northland. We've talked about Auckland Central. I just um, am... It's still intrigued about seats. I know it's very anti-MMP of me, but um, the two talking to two party campaigns this week. Um, there's a couple of seats I just wanted to for us to, to chew over briefly. Um, Labour's probably most targeted seat this election is Whanganui, um, which is up there. It's Whanganui in the south, Stratford and Hawera, Patia, Altham, that part of the country. Um, it's a fascinating seat. It's actually the history is great. You know that's. Um, uh, William Fox, John Balance, Julius Vogel, all three premier, premiers of the day represented Whanganui. It's one of the oldest seats in the country. Um, and it's really in play. Labour reckons they can, they, they can win it with a, a candidate called Steph Lewis, who's standing for a second time. Yeah. Um, and what, there was uh, how many votes in it last time? Uh, 1,507, I believe. Yeah, so, so pretty tight. I find this interesting because the national... 
MP who... So, sorry, 1706. 1706, okay. So Harete Hepangoa is the national MP in there and seems to have a very close relationship with Judith Collins, the new leader. Yes, and, um, she's shot up the rankings as soon she as has, got in. Yeah, yeah, she has shot up the rankings. She was way down on the list last time um, at the election. What was she, 60-something, I think it was? Or, yep. or You know, no no woman's land, way no. down the bottom there, no way, no how. And as you say, come up to 61. And she's now the shadow... 21 a- now. Yeah, she's 21, 21 now. now. But, and yeah. she's also shadow attorney general, yes. um, which is really interesting. Uh I spoke to Judith Collins when she released her book. So before she became the leader and she was doing her book tour, basically, had a conversation with her. And just out of curiosity, I asked her, who are your mates? Who are your mates in the National Party? Mm. Who did she name? Hipano. Yeah. Yeah. And she was the first Maori woman that nationally ever um, uh, selected to stand in a seat that they already held, um, took over from Chester Burroughs. But Wanganui's been a, a um, was was had long stretches of, of labour support, but it's you know there is a big rural hinterland in there, um, and it'll be really interesting to see um, you know such a close seat whether whether something could. And Steph happen. Lewis increased Labour's party vote yes. significantly. Um, at the last election. So while it wasn't a win, it was a win, if you know what I mean. And, and it's one of those seats where there's um, Whanganui and Pātea are very labourish, well, uh, certainly skew labour, um, whereas the, the rural booths go go national. Um, and so it's, and Steph Lewis, I see in everything that I've seen about her, stresses that she grew up on a farm, just to obviously try and connect mm. with, with And Hipangō has um, some very socially conservative views she does. Uh, on, on a number of issues too, which will be interesting to see how it plays with, with elements of, uh, of that electorate. But I guess, you know, when the tide's coming in for you, um, you back yourself to win those uh, closer electorate races, even though, as you say, it's the party vote that determines the share of um, votes that a party gets in, in, in Parliament under MNP, but Labour must feel that they have a real chance there. And Steph Lewis can argue the the old two-for-one argument because um, He Pango is, so, um, is now 21 on the party list and, you know, it would have to be a very bad day for National for her not to get in on the list. They, she can say, we'll vote me in the electorate and, and get um, get National on the list. Looking back at some of Steph Lewis's sort of campaign pitches last time around, Housing was a big theme for her. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So that, that could be a little awkward, <laughs> couldn't it? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> hey, and on the other side, the one that National wants to try and pick up and think they might be able to is Oharyu um, in Wellington, the richest seat in the country. Um, the one that was Peter Dunn's central. Is it the richest seat in the country? Yes. Well, I didn't know. Highest, no. highest, highest household. Household. Median personal mm. income. Yeah, and household income. Wellington is... Central was pretty close to that. Yeah. But, yeah, I, Kandala and Nio and mm. stuff, and, and, and also one of the younger, so it's, it's quite young and, and wealthy. And it's public servant central, right? Very much public servant. And so yeah. Peter Dunn held it for a long time, obviously, and taught the electorate how to vote split, right? These, these, guys, these guys split. It was really interesting looking back. They have had um, other... Other parties who have stood candidates in Ohariu. Um, you're talking about um, Philip Bunkle, Charles Chevelle, Katrina Shanks, Gareth Hughes, Heather Roy. They've had like two or three MPs mm. in that electorate and um, to- for and, years. And Top's trying to, to go for it this time, right? Top's really pushing into it. And I think that would, what will make it interesting because the the two main players, if you want to call them that, Greg O'Connor and Brett Hudson. So Brett Hudson, police spokesperson yes. for the National Party. Now, Greg O'Connor 
has taken himself off the party list. Mm. Yeah. So he asked to be removed. So he's put everything on red. All the chips are all on all red. All or nothing. All or nothing. But also for Brett Hudson, it's all or nothing too mm. because he's so far down the list. He dropped down under Collins. And so he's now, um, where is he, 38, I think, 36 on the list. Um, and so wing and a prayer. He would be, I just did some maths this morning. He, he's got about five or six electorate MPs behind him on the list. So if you if you go by the latest One News Colmar Brunton poll, National gets about 41 seats. He would be around that 41. So he'd yeah, so, be absolutely on the edge. So he's growing his so nails it's a, it's to a, hang off the ledge. It's a life and death battle yep. on that seat. They might not be able to get two MPs. It's a choice. For, for the first time in, in ages, oh, Harry, you might actually have to choose an MP. Yeah, well, well that, <laughs> yeah, so that is, that's what makes it really interesting. So you have that situation. And then you've got Tracy Martin, oh, who's yes. waded in, right? New Zealand first high-profile minister, and seemed to be quite, I don't know, hands across the water. She's the one Mm. that has been given the job of communicating with James Shaw of the Green, you know, the Greens. We know that not always Winston and the Greens have a um, great relationship. I think that's fair to say. So Tracy Martin is um, a very capable minister. She's got the Oranga Tamariki portfolio, which is tough work and not always a good look in public, but she's a very capable operator. She's moved into the area and is standing there. So that's interesting. But also I think this top candidate, Jessica Hammond, is interesting too. If the electorate decides, okay, we're sick of all of you, (laughs) we want someone fresh and with different ideas, and as you point out, Tim, Peter Dunn has given them a tutorial in how to (laughs) split their vote. For about 30 years. But also, that could damage. Who would that damage, do you think? That's the question to ask. Who does Tracy damage? Who does Jessica damage? Yes. Do they damage Greg O'Connor, which allows Brett Hudson to come through? Who needs only a 1.2% swing? Yeah, and um, top I mean, top. Remember, top got fifty thousand votes last time. Yeah. Um, so, but I think they took votes off National and Labor um, because they, they run this very sort of policy first, policy purist line at least, and so it's not hugely partisan. Um, in and, a, in and they a way. want and they want a property tax, which in the wealthiest. <laughs> electorate in the country yeah, is might not go down very maybe well. Maybe not, but but um, often those are people who sort of you know feel that that despite their own circumstances that they think that this is the right thing to do. So that's not impossible. Um, It's not entirely clear whether Top is taking votes off national um, or or Labour or a bit bit of both. Uh, The other thing I would say, though, about Top is that they've got um, issues because there are a lot of these other minor little players around nipping around, and so it's not like they are the sort of standout sort of no. um, you know outside Parliament party. So they've got um, quite a lot of competition in, in, in that regard. And because they're trying to play nicely this time and not be provocative as um, they were last time, they're not getting. They're actually not getting the play, sadly, which is yeah. cynical and disappointing. To say in that. an electorate like that, I think it comes down to who is the person that looks like they're grafting for you and your neighbours yeah. in that electorate. Because um, Tim and I both know, having worked together 
on another political show that to shoehorn Peter Dunn out <laughs> yes. of his electorate I was thinking about this this on a Saturday morning to do to come on the show, come on the program and do <laughs> an interview, right. no way, no Impossible. how would he leave. It I was tried n- for years to get Peter Dunn to appear live on a Saturday morning TV show, and he was like, nope, electorate first. Electorate first. electorate first. So he was a person who was in there and seen and available to his yep. um, electorate there at the office between this hour, these hours on these yep. days, you know, come hell or high water. Everything was so a party. Who, who is the person who is on the ground there grafting and dealing with the local issues, some of which are things like the warehouse in Johnsonville yes. is, is closing up. You know, it's closing up. Kiwi Bank has closed up. There are some very local grassroots yep. uh, issues. Newlands Volunteer Fire Brigade, question marks over this. And Brett Hudson reckons the second Victoria Tunnel, that the road's up there, they want to put public yeah. transport through I the mean, huts and Gre- stuff. I you mean, know, the, those issues. Th- that's right. But Greg O'Connor does have a powerful argument if, if, if the polls can show that um, that Labor's most likely to lead the government. He, he can say to his electorate, um, look, you know, I can give you a voice at the cabinet table. Yeah. I can, I can, I can give you a voice of government that these guys can't give you. So, I mean, I'd, I'd be playing that card pretty hard and imagine he will. I think you're probably right. Alright guys, that is probably enough time for uh, as we've got for Caucus this week. Thank you very much to Guy Nespiner, Lisa Owen, Scotty Campbell will be with us next week. Um, maybe even in Auckland if we're allowed to travel. But in the meantime, thanks for listening everybody. Um, we're back next Thursday and of course you can always listen to the Caucus podcast on your favourite uh, podcast app. Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, wherever you find your podcast. Have a great week. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.